Hey, welcome to the Financial Independence Podcast, the podcast where I get inside the brains of some of the best and brightest in the personal finance space to find out how they achieved financial independence. You'll be familiar with my guests today if you read my last article. It's Chad Carson from CoachCarson.com. And Chad was kind enough to publish an incredible guest post on my site uh, all about the tax optimization strategies when investing in real estate. And it's it's a phenomenal article. And it's an article I was hoping to write over the past few years. But since I didn't have the expertise to do it, since I'm not a real estate investor, uh, I wasn't able to. So when Chad came along and offered to write it for me, I took him up on the offer and I couldn't be more pleased with it. So if you haven't checked it out yet, head over to the blog and check out the most recent article. And I'll also link to it in the show notes of this post uh, in case you're listening to this far in the future. Um, but once Chad delivered his post to me, I knew I had to get him on the show to talk to him about his own story and how he was able to accumulate 90 plus rental units with his partner and how he got started and what he learned along the way. So I also wanted to get him on the program because he and his family just moved to Ecuador for the year. And that seems like quite an adventure. Um, they have two small children and they just uprooted their entire lives and just landed this past week in Ecuador. And that's where they're going to be for the year. And it seems like it's going to be a really cool experience. So I wanted to dive into that as well. Um, speaking of Ecuador, uh, the Chautauqua is just opened for booking this week. So if uh, you're listening to this near the release date, there should hopefully still be some slots left. So if you're interested in joining us down in Ecuador for a week, um, definitely head over to abovethecloudsretreats.com. That's abovethecloudsretreats.com and see if there are any tickets left. And I'm pretty sure I'd just talk Chad into going. So if you like this interview and wanted to chat more with Chad, hopefully he's going to be there too, since it's only going to be a short flight away from him since he's living down there this year. So I'm excited to dive in. So Chad, thanks a lot for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah, great to be here, Brandon. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into all this good stuff, um, I just realized something today. I may have actually watched you play football. Um, you, For the people that don't know, you actually played college football for Clemson. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that it was. I feel like it was ages ago now because I, uh, I played football in 1998 through or the 2001 or so, but yeah, I was a, I was actually a middle linebacker about, you know, you, you see me FenCon in person, but I was about 40 pounds bigger than when I played and had a big neck and, you know, one of like kind of muscle men looking guys. So that, that awesome. was another lifetime ago. That's really cool. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill and my buddy went to Clemson and I actually came down to Clemson to watch a football game one time. And it may have, I was in college from 2000 to 2004 and I'm thinking that I possibly went down there in 2001 to watch that game. So it's possible I watched you play football, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Chapel Hills. I love Chapel Hill, too. That's actually one of the schools I looked at going to when I was going to college. But they didn't offer me a football scholarship and Clemson did. So nice. that sort of that, that swayed my, my decision making. Yeah, definitely. So. um, So, yeah. Anyway, let uh, for people in the audience that aren't familiar with you, can you just uh, tell a little bit about yourself and tell a little bit about CoachCarson.com? Sure. Yeah. So I'm uh, my hometown is in Clemson, South Carolina. So the same place for the university is and. Um, I've been a, uh, since I graduated from college, actually, I've been a full-time entrepreneur and I sort of had the decision matrix of going to, I, I was a, a biology major in college and I was sort of leaning towards medical school and was actually applying to medical schools. And I also thought about going to the NFL because I've done decent at Clemson playing and, uh, that sort of fell off a cliff at the end, right before I, uh, went to the NFL. I just had a bad senior year and our team was bad and, it just didn't work out, which was probably for the better, given concussions and things like that in the NFL. Uh, but so I went into uh, my, my third choice was I went into entrepreneurship as a real estate entrepreneur, meaning I, I figured out how to, to start buying and selling houses and finding good deals on real estate. And um, I thought it would be sort of a short term thing. I would just figure out how to do that and go get a real job after that. Uh, but about 15 years later, since I started that, I'm still rolling with it. And that sort of uh, transition from being just buying and selling properties just to make a living and put food on the table transitioned into also being a real estate investor where I bought rental properties and notes. And I've pretty much done it all in terms of residential real estate since that time. So that's been sort of my business finance story. And uh, 
but other than that, you know, just kind of personally, I like to, my wife and I like to travel a lot and, and do, uh, you know, learn foreign languages. My wife's a Spanish teacher. And so I picked up Spanish and learned Spanish and took German in college. So that's sort of our, our hobby is to learn new languages and travel and do things like that. Yeah. And you're, you're speaking to us from Cuenca, Ecuador, right? That exactly. Yeah. We've, you caught me at a time like the cusp of a big new transition in our life. We're going to Ecuador for a year and we're living here and we have two daughters, three-year-old and five-year-old daughters, and they're going to go to uh, school here locally, like a local elementary school. And hopefully yeah, they'll become fluent and speak Spanish here. And so it's just sort of a something we've been planning for a while and you know, we could talk about how that happened. Maybe it's been a like a year in the making to actually root, uproot ourselves and, get out of town and go to this trip to Ecuador, but it's, it's kind of a cool, uh, big moment for us in our lives. Yeah, no. And I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me because you literally just got to Ecuador within this last week. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're, we're like getting over jet lag and we're <laughs> 8,500 feet altitude. So we were like walking zombies for a couple of days, but, uh, we're, I think we're finally on the up and up now. Cool. Yeah, no, we'll definitely talk about that. Uh, definitely want to hear that story of how, how you made that move and how you made the decision to do that. But uh, let's get back to back in the day. Uh, how did you pick re- real estate? What was how did that decision come about? Yeah, so I, I was fortunate enough. My uh, my father uh, owned rental properties. So my mom is a dentist and my father is an entrepreneur. And so he I sort of observed it that way. Um, I never thought I wanted to get into rental properties, though, because when I was in middle school, my dad would uh, have me, the summers. We were in, I grew up in Noonan, Georgia. It was super hot summers, and my dad would buy these houses at like a foreclosure sale or something. And typically, when, you, when that happens, somebody abandons the house, and so like there'd be refrigerators full of like food and meat. And he'd say he'd drop us off and say, "Hey boys, uh, go ahead and clean up this refrigerator. I'll, I'll be back in an hour or two. <laughs> and and we you know it was just nasty old refrigerators and houses with clothes piled everywhere and rats you know running out the back door because it was abandoned six months ago and and we did, I was like this is ridiculous who in the world would ever want to buy anything like this or do anything like this and we kind of hated real estate because just with the personal experience of nasty houses but um, after I got out of college when I was sort of in that decision time I was thinking about what I wanted to do and it, it sort of popped back in my mind I was like wow my dad was not it was a pretty smart guy getting doing some of that and so I started picking his brain and asking about it and um, he had some books on his shelf, and so I just started reading some books about it, and thought I would I would give it a go, just to try it out for myself. That's fantastic. Um, quick aside, um, did you have air conditioning in Clemson? Because when I was at UNC for freshman sophomore year in the dorms, we didn't have air conditioning, and like you said, it's ridiculously hot in the summer, and it's still ridiculously hot in yeah. August and September when you're moving in and you know having your first two months of classes. So, did you guys have air conditioning down south? <laughs> I think we had like one, one thermostat in like a five story building. And I think the thermostat was in the basement. And so like <laughs> whoever the RA, you know, the person who lived in the basement was like, man, it's cold in here. And they would turn it up to like, <laughs> so if you're on the third floor, it'd be like you know 90 degrees and sweating. And I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that was part of the hazing of the freshman or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I'm with you. It was totally hot all, all the time. So nasty. Yeah. That was terrible. Um, so anyway, you graduated in 2003 and I think you said you had like a thousand dollars in the bank at the time. So how do you start a real estate career from, you know, having a grand in the bank? Yeah. So I, I was fortunate. I mean, I had about a thousand dollars literally in, in my bank account and I owned a car free and clear that I'd you know, gotten high school and didn't have any debt on that. And, I was really also fortunate I didn't have any college debt because I played football and that paid for my school. So I guess I was, you know, I was in the position where I didn't have a lot of, I think that was really the thing that pointed me towards being an entrepreneur because I think if I would have had 40,000 in debt, I would have been more inclined to go get a job that paid me some money that I could actually use to pay some, make those payments. And because I didn't, I felt really free to be able to make different choices. And the choice I made to just start a business, I had a friend who also wanted to get into real estate. And so the two of us talked about it and his father had been in real estate too. And, um, I actually got my start just by, um, bird dogging houses, like good deals for other people. So I didn't have any money and I didn't really didn't know the business. So I, I, the idea I read it somewhere, the idea of just finding an experienced investor and trying to figure out a way to bring, you know, kind of good leads or on deals to them. So like I might walk around a neighborhood and see some for sale by owner houses or, find a vacant house in the neighborhood and I'd go knock on the door of the neighbors and say, Hey, do you know anything about this vacant house? Who owns it? Why is it vacant? 
and I, all I had was energy and time. I didn't really know anything. <laughs> so I would just knock on the door and it, it, you know, if you knock on 10 doors of 10 vacant houses, you might find a couple where they say, yeah, so-and-so moved out of town for a new job and they, they're just making payments on this house. They, they, they'll probably just get rid of it. And so I would find those kind of stories. And then I didn't know what to offer on the house. So I would go back to the, it, it turns out I, my father was the one I ended up buying houses for the first, first year I, I was in business. And so I would bring that lead to him and say, Hey, what would you offer for this house? And then he would buy the house and I'd make a small, a small markup on it or something, you know, a couple thousand bucks every time he bought a deal. And so that's how I learned the business and saved a little bit of money. And then this, that was my second year in business, my friend from college and I um, decided to do it on our own. And so I moved back from Atlanta up to Clemson, South Carolina. And we, we started finding doing the same thing. We would find deals and then we went to other in, individuals because we didn't, I didn't have a job. So I didn't have any, I really wasn't bankable to be able to go get like a regular loan. And so I would, I would just find other people who had money or had credit and then we would partner on the deal. So I would find the deal. They put up the credit or the money and then we'd split the profit somehow. And then when we sold it and it was kind of as simple as that, we would just, as long as I could find a good deal, I knew there'd be money. And then I'd you know, save the money up and eventually started um, using our own money to do some deals as well. In addition to that. Wow. That's, that's amazing. And that's called bird dogging. Yeah. The first year when I first started, I was just bird, bird dogging. That's a, maybe that's a Southern term I need to describe the Southern United States. So like when people go hunting for, uh, you know, birds or something, they'll bring a dog who will kind of point out where the, where the birds are in the bush. And so the, the dog will point to it and say, there's the, there's the bird. That's all the, that's all the dog does. The dog can't get the birds. So <laughs> <Right>. that's, <laughs> that, that's pretty much what I was. you just, you just sniff out good deals and, it was really handy though, because I learned how to find good deals. And that's one of the most important parts of, of real estate is being able to evaluate and find these kind of diamonds in the rough, because there's a, there's a lot of properties that aren't good deals. And so you've got to figure out a way to, to kind of sniff them out and figure out where, where those ones that you can actually make a profit on, you know, are. Right. So what did you learn over those years? Just the fact that, you know, you need to really hit the streets and, start talking to people and form relationships is it was it the relationships that was was the most important thing or was it just the hustle i think it was both yeah i think you hit the nail on the head i mean first of all hustle because i can't tell you how awful i probably was when i first started i mean i was think about the disadvantages you're 23 years old i've never lived i've never even owned my own house i'm living in the spare bedroom of my business partner <laughs> you know i, I, I and so I really had nothing and, and no experience. And so what do you bring to the table when you're talking to people about buying their house? I mean, there's a, a couple or a retiree or somebody who owns this property and they're going to try to sell it to you. And so what, what, did, what do you have other than hustle and sincerity? And to say, you know, so I would have to, when I first started, and this really applies to any business, I would just say, you know what, I'm brand new, um, but I do know people who have money to buy properties like this. And if you'd give me a chance, I'd like to make you an offer to buy it. And it was, it was kind of as simple as that. And you were just honest about it and you hustled and, and then you, you then the relationship part is what you said is you, you have to have relationship. It's like a puzzle. You have people who have money, you have people who have a property and you're the hustler in between who's trying to just bring these people together. And if you can arrange it the right way, you can find a way to make a profit doing that. And so that's, that's, that's really, I mean, as simple as you could really get complicated with real estate, but it really comes down to properties and money. And so if you're, if you're doing the business yourself, if you're just buying like a rental property on the side, you might be going and getting a loan yourself. Um, and then you're going to have to go find the property, but you might hire a real estate agent to help you find the deal. Or you might find a bird dog like me, you know, find a young, <laughs> young college grad and say, Hey, you know, go, go bird dog some houses for me and I'll, I've got money. Go find me a deal. Wow. That's fantastic. So, so you focused on residential real estate is that, I've read on, I think it was bigger pockets. One of your guest posts on bigger pockets, um, just promoting residential real estate because you said it's simple and understandable because you know, you live somewhere and you know what you like about which, where you live. So it makes sense that other people like those things as well. Um, so you're, yeah. um, it seems like you're happy that you fell into residential real estate, but it sounds like you got into it just because you know, that's what you were walking around and seeing. Is that, is that how it sort of worked? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like I, I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett. Uh, you probably read some of his stuff too. But like, I, I like one of his his maxims for investing was to always invest in something that's simple and understandable. And so that 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 transitions perfectly to real estate because there's a huge universe of real estate properties. I mean, you could buy skyscrapers in downtown Manhattan. You know, that's that's real estate. Or you could buy a piece of land out in the country. Or you could buy you know, mobile homes or single family houses or apartment buildings. But, but really, if it comes down to it, I read a, I read a book that you might want to link to in the show notes um, called Building Wealth One House at a Time by John Schaub. Yeah, definitely. And it's a, it's a really cool it's the book. I always recommend to people when you start, because it's, the point is he buys he's, he's bought all sorts of properties and I, I have too. But, but single family houses, when you come down to it, are the simple and understandable parts of real estate. And they're simple because. There's lots and lots of people who need to live in them, whether they're renters or buyers, and they're understandable because most of us have lived in a house, and we, we, we know the things that make a house good or bad or a neighborhood good or bad, and it's not like I had – when I first started bird dogging, it wasn't like you had to like read a book to understand that this neighborhood was a little bit scare, sketchy and you, know, <laughs> you had to walk around. You, you're gonna be, you need a gun to walk around this neighborhood during the day. It's like, all right, I don't, I don't think I'm going to buy in that neighborhood. <laughs> right. Or you go to another neighborhood and it's sort of trendy and there's, you know, there's people who are remodeling houses and you kind of get the feel that there's a buzz and an excitement in that neighborhood. And, and that's, that's as intuitive as it is. I mean, it's just if you've shopped for houses renting or gone on Airbnb to kind of shop around, you understand the, the fundamental part of real estate, which is go to a good location that's close to parks, that's close to public transportation, or if you're kind of in a more suburban setting, go to a neighborhood that's in a good school district, that's safe, that's, um, you know, got nice uh, amenities. And so really that's, you don't have to, te- you don't have to learn a whole lot in terms of the principles of real estate. Um, the thing you might, that might not be as intuitive is going back to the other side of like the money, the finance. I mean, that's a little, little bit more complicated, but you can keep that simple too. I mean, I know people who have paid cash for every single real estate property they buy. And that's, that's pretty simple. You either the property is a hundred thousand bucks. Do I have a hundred thousand bucks or do I not? And so you could keep the whole business super, super simple, or you can make it more complicated if you want to. And there are advantages to that as well. Um, but I, I like that real estate. That's one of the main things I liked about real estate was I didn't have to go learn how to read a stock, uh, you know, an analyst report of this certain company, or I didn't have to uh, figure things out as, as a business. I could get into it pretty quickly and be up and running within six months of knowing being a semi-expert on my little niche within my market. Oh, that's really cool. Um, and you said, you know, obviously residential real estate is understandable and simple, but you can complicate it quite easily with financing. So do you want to talk about a little bit about all the things you've gotten into? Because like you, I think you mentioned at the beginning of the show, you said that you've done every sort of real, residential real estate deal possible. Um, so could you talk a little bit about you know, wholesaling and all these other things that people may have heard about? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so the, the, the different niches you hear about in real estate, they either, the niche is either in the property type, like it's a single family or a multi-unit building. That's one way you can kind of divide the universe. The other part way is um, the, the types of deals you do depend on the financing. Like, so if you have this single family house, it's a hundred thousand dollars, or maybe that number's too low. Somebody's in San Francisco, maybe it's a million dollar single family house. <laughs> and, that house, you have to come up with the money somehow to buy that house. And so the, really the question is, who, who is going to come up with the money? Is it going to be, you know, the simplest scenario is I've got $100,000 in the bank. I'm going to be the person who puts up the money. All right, that's, that's super simple. On the other end of the spectrum, like when I first started, again, 1000 bucks in the bank, how do you buy a property? You've got to use some sort of leverage. And there's a lot of different kinds of leverage. The, the most common kind of I think most people are familiar with and use is to go get a mortgage at the bank. And so you can put 20% down, get a conventional mortgage if you can qualify for that. And it, you know, it's a good loan, 30 year fixed, 4% interest these days. And that's, that's kind of your standard leverage, but that's not the only way to do it. And I was, I was sort of unlucky and lucky in that I started and I couldn't go get a conventional mortgage because I didn't have a W2 income, meaning I didn't have a regular salary and banks, banks giving you loans want to have a regular salary. That's a sort of a, a lower risk profile. And I was a basically unemployed. So how do, how do I buy properties and that I can uh, and find the money? So what I did was go to alternative sources of financing. And all that meant was I had to find an individual who had the money. 
And so it, um, the individuals I, I typically use to buy the money, to put up the money, was uh, the first one I found was a professor at Clemson who I'd had for just some, I took some classes for fun and he was a business professor and he happened to have some money in a, in a self-directed IRA account. So he had his retirement money and he, there's a little niche within the retirement community where you can actually make loans on real estate. And so if he had a hundred thousand bucks in the bank, I found a good deal. He understood real estate. He knew that this hundred thousand dollar property that I was buying was worth 150,000. So he might say, all right, Chad, here's what we'll do. I'll, I'll loan you the 100,000 bucks to buy this property. My IRA will loan you the money and then we'll figure out a way to split it on the back end. And so the, the simple scenario might be that I pay him 50% of the profit and I get 50% of the profit. That would be sort of a venture capital kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but then sort of what I evolved to over the years was paying that same lender, just paying them interest, just like I would a bank. And so like I paid... When I first started, I paid all my uh, investors 10% interest. Wow. So they, I would borrow, I would borrow money from them for six months, and you know, I, let's say the $150,000 house that I bought for 100,000 bucks, I would borrow 100,000 bucks for um, six months at 10% interest, and so you know, 5,000 bucks would be my cost of money. But when I sold the property, I might make 20 or 30,000 bucks, and so that was just kind of a cost of doing business for me at that time. Right. So that, That's really interesting stuff. Um, and so let, let's go back to your progression. So, you know, bird dogging led to you getting your own property. And then did you flip that property in that in that manner that you just described where, you know, you take on a, a short term loan and then fix it up, sell it and make the profit and then pay back the, the interest? Exactly. Yeah. So my, my bread and butter for several years, which is buy, fix up, sell, buy, fix up, sell, or sometimes you know, you mentioned wholesaling. Instead of fixing it up, I would just, just like you talked about wholesalers, like in the uh, any other product, I would just make a small markup. So instead of me making thirty thousand bucks on the house and fixing it up all the way and selling it to an end customer, I might take that hundred thousand dollar house and sell it to a rental property investor who just wanted to keep it as a rental. I might sell it to them for one hundred five thousand or one hundred ten thousand and just make a quick, you know, some quick money like that. Wow. So that. So that that's one distinction. You you can wholesale the property, you can retail the property. If you're if you're flipping properties, that's one whole business model of real estate flipping houses. Um, but then my progression was at some point I didn't want to just have a job. You know, I, I started like probably a lot of your listeners started reading books about financial independence and how at some point you need to build wealth and you need to have and in real estate a lot of the focus is on passive income. You want to have income coming in so that you don't have to flip another house to make your money. You actually have some money coming in every single month. And so the net, really the natural progression was to start buying rental properties. And so that was, that was kind of the next step up for us after we had saved a little bit of money and learned how to flip some houses. We also started, you know, we might flip two houses and find one that we could keep. And uh, that, that was sort of our next step. So how many years into your into your real estate journey was this, do you think, that you started actually keeping some of the properties? I think it was about two and a half or three years into it. Wow, that's pretty um, so, so you I, guys really hustled to to build a bit of a nest egg to then invest. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was always about, you know, I think that some of the principles that you, you talk a lot about, about living frugally and um, saving your money, like we, I totally, like I, li- I really lived in the spare bedroom of my business partner. He had a house and you know, it was just sitting there with storage. I said, Hey, can I sleep on that bed over there in, in your house? And he's like, okay, I guess that's fine. And, and so I, like I, we, we both, my business partner, and I kept our overhead super, super low so that because you might flip a few houses and make a bunch of money for the first six months of the year, the second six months, you might not make any money or the deal might go bad. And so I think the progression was those first three years, we got really good at keeping our expenses low, living cheap, and then that way, when we did make money, all that cash just went in the bank and we were able to save up money. And that sort of, that gave us a nest egg or reserve fund, which is really important with, with real estate or any business is to have a good reserve fund before you start owning rental properties. Because rental properties are wonderful for building wealth, but if you, especially if you buy leveraged rental, rental properties, they're not going to produce a lot of income on the front end, at least not consistently because you might make $200 a month on a rental property, but then what happens if a year and a half from now, the heating and air system goes out 
on that rental property. That's a $4,000, $5,000 hit. Mm-hmm. And so it, it takes a lot of $200 months, you know, to make up for that kind of, that kind of hit. And, and so the, really the rental property game, as opposed to flipping properties, is all about generating big chunks of cash that you can use to pay your bills and hopefully to save money to set it. So this is like anybody who has a job. I was basically, my job was flipping houses. But then the, the wealth building came in when I started um, using some, a chunk of that money that we had flipped and investing that as a down payment or a reserve fund for a rental property. And then that the game of rental properties is, is eventually, at least in my, my mind, the game of rental properties is eventually getting it free and clear of, of debt so that you have a very low risk, high income investment that allows you to, to go to Ecuador or do whatever else you're going to do with your life or leave your job or have more independence to do other things. Right. Absolutely. So, so you're flipping, you know, a couple of houses a year and you're now starting to accumulate these rentals as investments. Um, over time, these rentals are going to start being able to pay for houses themselves and things like that. So how, what was the progression? Like, did you just start slowing down your flipping? Like, as you said, was your job and slowly just transition, transition into just managing these rentals as an investor or, uh, and now you own over 50 properties. So what was the transition? How did, how long did it take to accumulate all this? Yeah. So I, I wish, I wish the progression would have been a nice, like kind of even curve, you know, on a graph, but unfortunately like, uh, real estate markets and financial markets happen. And so like, we were, uh, just to give everybody a context, I started buying houses. I, I learned the business and started in 2003. And we really started growing in 2004, five, six. You know, you, anybody knows the financial story can see that coming. You know, it was 2007, 2008. What, what happened then? You had a global financial meltdown led by the U- U.S. real estate market, which we were in. And, uh, and so this is kind of, it's kind of amazing for me to think about it now. But in 2007, which is right before, you know, everything hit the fan, was we actually bought, uh, we had 50 closings that year where we acquired not 50, you know, 50 deals, 50 you properties, 50 deals in 2007, 50 deals. Oh, well, that was acquisitions. We sold some other ones. And so like out of those, so we, we were really, really, really like ramping <laughs> up in 2007. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the, the story is like a lot of those we flipped. So we, we had some deals that we made 60,000 bucks on like we, these $300,000 houses that we bought and fixed and flipped made huge chunks of cash on um, then we had other properties that were we, we were getting into rental properties at the point too, and going back to the financing part of the story, you know, I still was a little bit leery about getting bank loans, even though we had a couple of years of history. Um, so most of our rental properties, instead of going to the bank and getting loans, most of ours were either like the guy I told you about. We had a private investor, and we we might pay them six percent interest instead of ten percent because we're going to steady for five years or ten years. Um, so we, we started buying it with private investors or we started buying those properties with seller financing where I would go to a motivated seller who was a landlord who'd owned a property for 30 years. He kind of let the property run down and he couldn't get any good tenants anymore. And I would make him an offer to pay him $10,000 down cash if he would finance the, the balance of the property to me at $500 a month or something. And so the, the positive side of that 50 properties that we bought where most of the deals we bought were with private money and they had longer term balloons on them or longer term buyouts so that we didn't ha- we didn't have any money, a lot of loans coming due in 2008, 9, 10. And that's where most of the people who you know, had a really tough time was they, where they had to pay off loans when they couldn't get a loan from anybody else. Right. And so what, so what we did, we, we kind of looked through it because out of those 50 properties we bought, you know, maybe 90% were really good deals, but then 10% were horrible deals where I bought in the wrong location or um, they had negative cash flow or, you know, we had to spend $20,000 more in repairs than we thought we were going to spend. And so it, it probably took, you know, let's see, 2007, 2010 or 11 to where we, we had to like sell off some bad properties. We had to just sort of kind of, you know, figure things out and just kind of uh, eat off of our reserves, to be honest, on some of the, because we just weren't making a lot of money flipping properties at that point. And so I, I go back to the the frugality, though, the fact that we were super frugal and can live off, you know, 20,000 bucks a year or something um, made it a lot easier to kind of go through the downturn and to make it through. And by the time 2012, 13 came around, we had sort of sold off some of the bad stuff and 
made it through it and flipping houses a little bit easier at that point. And so we, we kind of got back into the progression of climbing like we were before. And that's, you know, that was, we're 2006, 17 now. So that was three or four years ago. And it's, it's back to the point where we've been able to clean up our portfolio and, and have, we actually have about 90 units right now. We, we just bought a bunch last year that were just good deals and in a, in a better position with our portfolio, our, our debt portfolio, where we've paid down some properties or paid off some properties. And the ones we've kept, we have longer term, low interest financing that are just that cash flow really well. And we don't mind keeping some of that leverage on the properties just to kind of a, as a hedge long term for inflation and other things. Wow, that's a that's an amazing story. Um, I can't even was it ridiculously stressful? I can't even imagine doing 50, <laughs> 50 plus buying deals and let alone however many other deals you were doing that year when all that stuff was going on. Was it just insane? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got too good at buying properties. Like I was just like people were calling me left and right. And I was, I was just making offers and people were buying. So yeah, it was I think it got stressful at the end of the year when we realized when my business partner is probably the smarter guy than me. He was like, ah, we need to kind of slow down a little bit. And I was like, yeah, you're right. We need to slow, we need to slow down and just kind of absorb what we have. And, and I, I don't know, we weren't, we weren't like smart or anything in terms of seeing the future, but you just, you, when you're in the business, you can notice things. It's harder to, you know, you, you, houses take longer to sell, things are happening. So you can kind of, you can at least get a three or six months headway on what things are coming down the pipe. And so we saw, sort of saw that we kept on saving more money and, but it, you know, I, I think the thing that I learned as much as anything is the resilience and the adaptability that we have as entrepreneurs. And, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, like everything starts and stops with you. And so when things are going well, people are going to pat you on the back and say, Hey, you're great. And when things are going poorly, they're going to say, Hey, you suck, you know, either, either way. And so it, it sort of forces a level of responsibility on yourself to where, you know, you, you go back to hustle. Like, just like right when I started, I had to hustle just to put some food on the table. Well, 2008, all right, you can complain about it and fight it and resist it. Or you can just say, you know what, I'm going to hustle to make this work because that's what I got to do. And so we just hustled a lot. We, we worked really hard to sell some of the properties that we had that weren't that good of deals. We, you know, like we had tenants in a lot of these properties and we would go talk to the tenants and say, hey, do you want to buy a property? You want to buy this house instead of rent it? And some of them would say, yeah, but my credit's not any good. And, and so I would help them and kind of coach them along on how to pay off this debt or this thing. And so that I, I just I found that there, no matter what you're up against, it's, it's given me some confidence to know that as an entrepreneur, you can, in real estate in particular, a lot of your success depends on your own ability to build relationships and to hustle and to learn and to get better. And, you know, that, that might be why real estate's it might be for some people and it might not be for other people because if, if that kind of thing like totally scares you and says, that's crazy. I never want to get into that at all. There are plenty of other alternatives like, you know, Jim Collins and uh, passive index investing, which I love too. Um, you know, do that, do something else. If you're making a bunch of money in your job and you just don't want to get into this fine. But if you're somebody who wants a little bit more control over your destiny and you have some fun, you know, challenging yourself to see, you know, what can I do buying a couple of rental properties on the side to see if I'm up for it, if I can, you know, meet the challenge of buying a property and financing it and making some really good returns in the process. That's sort of, I think, the, the profile of people who are more attracted to real estate. Oh, that's really cool. And, and, and don't lose your frugal roots because I'm sure there was lots of real estate investors with similar, similar portfolios, similar skills, who probably, you know, I imagine you're making pretty good money at that time if you're doing that many deals in yeah. a year. Um, they probably bought themselves a huge house and a fancy car and then 2008 yep. happened and then their whole business and their whole lives were flushed down the toilet. But you guys luckily didn't have that happen. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I re it really does come down to if, when I've looked at in the rearview mirror to look at how we made it through it. It was the fact that we lived super frugally, number one, and that we didn't have to, that when we, both when we were making money and when we did, weren't making money, you know, the, both at the same time. We, we, I lived, I lived, uh, kept on driving my Toyota Camry that I had in high school, and it wasn't an issue for me. And whereas uh, there were other investors who were doing a lot better than we were, actually making more money. Who bought the bigger house, the bigger car? Um, it is you kind of get caught up, caught up in, in it, and they they also were more aggressive with their financing. They were. Um, using like more commercial loans, they had short-term balloons, and they were 
and that you know they were just kind of getting growing beyond their capacity to handle what they had financially and so that was a big lesson for us too is that you've always got to have reserves no matter what business you're in because that you just you can't predict exactly how things are going to go and so you've got to you just got to build some big cash uh, money on the side just to make sure you can withstand the the uncertainty of what's going to come that's a great lesson were you still living with your business partner at that time no, I finally I moved out after a year. That was that was probably, but but I I kept the same philosophy financially. Like one of my favorite um, niches in real estate, and we can I wrote an article on this too. It's called uh, house hacking. Oh yeah. And uh, well, actually, I didn't. Uh, I have some articles that I can I can send to you. But house hacking basically was a way I, I moved out of my business partner's house and I bought um, I bought a house or a quadruplex that had four four units. I lived in one unit. And then I rented the other three units out. And so I was basically living for positive $200 a month by getting $400 in rent for my three tenants. So that's 1200 bucks coming in. And my mortgage taxes and insurance were about 1100 bucks. So I was, I was living positive by kind of using my skills as a real estate investor and not being able to live in an apartment that kind of kept my overhead super low, even at, even when I went and bought my own property. That's so that was, that was kind of my progression was that I, I like to, in addition to buying houses as an, as an investor, as a business, I think house hacking or another way of doing it is called live in flips where you move into a house and don't try to make this your forever home, make it a, a home that you're going to live in for a couple of years, fix it up, turn around and resell it two years later um, and make a big profit. And in the, in the U S and I think UK and Canada too have the similar laws where if you live in a property, you can make, hundred uh, percent of your profit tax free. And so that up to a limit in the U S and so that's one way or the other, whether you house hack, or whether you do live in flips, like my main recommendation to everybody, whether you get into real estate investing or not, is if you're early in your career or if you're kind of grow in growing your wealth, there's no reason you either need to do a house hack, do a live in flip or rent, rent somewhere because those are your, those are your three most financially viable ways to treat your residents. Uh, if you just go and buy the the nice pretty house in a pretty neighborhood and pay retail prices for it, I mean it's costing you a ton of money to do that. And so that one way or the other, you got to figure out a way to reduce your housing expenses. And that's that's if you across the board, if you read any financial blogger, other people who talk about building wealth and getting financial independence, you know, figuring out that housing expense is, is such a big big deal. Absolutely, and. I, just as you were talking there, I realized that we actually did a live in flip and I've never realized that until right now. Um, like I know Mr. 50, Mr. and Mrs. 1500 from 1500days.com. They've, you know, they've built great wealth from doing live in flips over the years. Um, but exactly. I, I really didn't realize that that's what I did unintentionally. Um, right back in, I graduated in 2004, moved over to Scotland, uh, since my wife, that's where she lit or my girlfriend at the time lived now wife. Um, and you know, we were like, all right, we're adults now, I guess we have to buy a house. So we stupidly got, I think a 95% mortgage <laughs> and then borrowed the 10 grand off of her parents to buy a car that we could use to get to work from our new house. And then covered the rest right. of the the down payment that we couldn't cover um wow. and so that was really stupid but it ended up working out great um because it was a live and flip we we did it up over two years like just did room by room as we lived there just picked one and then did it up and then picked another one um and then luckily we sold it in 2007 uh, for over 50% more than we bought it for. And that, that was like a huge, you know, boost to, yeah. to our financial security and put us on this, you know, path to financial independence eventually. So, um, yeah. I, I just never would have, I, I wouldn't have called it a live in flip because I don't think that was what we intended, but yeah, it was like two and a half years. So that's probably like a good live in flip time frame. Yeah. I mean, you know, you challenge your listeners to put it in the calculator and just think about it. If you may, if in your, your first seven years of investing or like, you know, building money, if you bought and flipped three houses, if you've really, really optimized it and you, you, know, you made 50,000 bucks per flip, you know, two years, two years, two years, you know, put that in your finance, your retirement calculator to figure out how much nitro that puts on your plans in terms of retiring early. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how, if you start compounding that tax-free money, um, how much that, can do for you. And I think you've had Mr. and Mrs. 1500 on the show. They're friends of mine too. 
and that's been a big chunk. That was a big momentum for them moving forward. I mean, they, they saved a bunch of money and had good savings rates, but the fact that they had these huge chunks of money from real estate, I mean, was a big factor in being able to do what they want to do as early as they've done. And so I, I would, I mean, if, if that's something you're inclined to, or if you accidentally do it like you did, you know, either way, I mean, it's, uh, it's something you can at least just do once or twice. You don't have to be a lifetime homeowner, but if you want to take advantage of that, that's one of the best um, angles in the tax code is to take advantage of a live-in flip. And then just kind of, you can rent for the rest of your life if you want to, but you know, take advantage of that for a few years while you're willing to do it and able to do it. And then, you know, move on to another strategy after that. Absolutely. And yeah, your, your guest post on my site with all the different tax advantages of real estate is just phenomenal. So I'll obviously link to that in the show notes of this show as well. But uh, yeah, there's just so many different tax advantages to, to the whole real estate game as well that can lower your lower your costs dramatically and yeah, increase the amount you can save. So looking back, you've learned a ton over the years, I'm sure. Um, if you were yeah. starting from scratch and early retirement, financial independence was your goal. What do you, how, how do you think that would look? What would you, what would you do? So if, like if I, if you bought me down and I found myself in a, a good job with, you know, steady, sa- steady savings, really good high savings rate. I, I've got all that to take care of first. I think I, I would look at um, the whole financial world. I would say, number one, you know, I'm going to have some retirement savings. So like my 401k you know, do all the stuff that Brandon teaches you like with the HSAs and the 401ks and all that stuff first, like that's one whole chunk of your retirement. And whether you invest in real estate or stocks or index funds or whatever, that's, that's kind of your personal preference. But then I would look at real estate as, as a side hustle, as, as, a, as a side business that you can do. And so you might take a chunk of that savings that you have, maybe you put a chunk into 401ks and do all that. And then you put another chunk into this, this little business you're going to start on the side. And that little business could be like, my preference would always be to start off with a live-in flip or a house hack if you could. I mean, those, those are really, the only downside of those is the fact that they're a little bit more uncomfortable with your living arrangement because some people would complain with a house hack for example, I was living in a quadruplex. They would say, oh my God, you got to have to live next to your tenants. That's awful. You know, I don't want to live next to my tenants. And, but for me, I mean, it was awesome. I, I became really good friends with my tenants and to this day, I still communicate with some of them. And, and so if, and if you buy a good property and you treat your tenants well, that's just not, a, it's just a non-factor. Yeah, they might knock on your door on a Saturday to say, hey, my toilet's leaking, but I, I am not handy at all. People need to know that. Like, I don't, I don't fix stuff. Like, I make punch lists and I call handymen and contractors who do fix stuff. So it was never like, you know, I, I could be in Ecuador. I was, one time I was in, uh, my wife and I were traveling to uh, Chile and Patagonia. I was, I remember Skyping on this little laptop I had where one of the tenants called and said, I've got a, a hot water heater is leaking or it's not working. And I literally got on Skype for two minutes from the, I was sitting on the Magellan Strait in this little internet cafe looking out over like the water. And we were about to go on a tour of like a penguin, a penguin colony of all things. And so I made my, I made my call to the plumber over Skype and they went and fixed it. And I went off to my tour of the penguin, penguin colony after that. And you know, went on my way. And so that's, I guess I'm, I got started on that story because, you know, house hacking, it seems uncomfortable because you're living in the property that you're renting out, but if you, the, the benefits of that are way beyond that. And it's not a, it's not a forever thing. I mean, this might be two or three years that you live in the property and then you move out and now you've got a built-in rental property that you can keep for the rest of your life and pay the thing off and use it to produce income for you uh, forevermore. So it's, it's, I would start off with house hacking or if you're, if you're in an area that doesn't have like small multi-units that are that affordable, or if you have it in an area that has some single family houses that you, you found like a neighborhood that had a lot of older homes that needed work and you, that would be where you would do a, a live in flip. Like you'd move into one of these older houses where the kitchen's completely dated and the bathrooms are dated. Um, the, the, the worse it smells and the worse the carpet is. The, the more awful it looks, the better. I mean, that's really what you want. You you want the ugly duckling, and then your job is then you're 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 willing to live in the ugly duckling and deal with some sawdust and some um, sheetrock dust for a couple of years until you turn around and sell it. And so that's I would start with those, but then you know you could also get into. I know a lot of people who also if if they're not in the position to do house hacking or live in flips, you could just buy a, a, a rental property on the side. 
and there's a, there's a lot of kind of thinking about where that location should be. You know, if you're in California or if you're in the UK in certain locations, you know, that's prices might outpace the rents by a good bit. And so you might not, you got to choose a location where it really makes sense to rent the property and, and actually be able to make some income either to pay for the loan or to pay yourself. So there's a, there's a whole science of analyzing locations and rent to price ratios and that sort of thing. But um, I think that's, that's, that's a, a pretty good progression to people wanting to save up their money for a down payment and buy a rental property or two on the side. That's also a good way to go. That's fantastic. And so if so you mentioned one book, which I'll link to in the show notes, but you also offer like a real estate investing toolkit on your site. So I can link to that. And then I'm assuming that's free for anyone to get and just get yeah, or yeah, something. Definitely. Yeah. And I've, on my, my site, I have just kind of some basic tools on how do you analyze niches? Like, like if you're looking at all these different niches of real estate, you know, buying duplexes or buying single family houses or being a private lender, I have some, um, uh, in, in kind of my core information on my site, I have just some ideas on how to get started and think about that. And cause it, because it's so personal, you know, you, not everybody, you might hear the stuff I've done and say, that's crazy. I would never want to buy all those houses. And I wouldn't recommend it either. Majority of people are going to have a different niche than I have. And you might be in a different part of the country. So part of the game of real estate is getting in and, and trying to find a match between your personality, your financial stage and what's a good opportunity in your market. And so I think that's a big part of what I focus on on coachcarson.com is I, I just try to get, break it down to like the simple parts of real estate. Don't try to overcomplicate it and try to, try to figure out a little niche that works for you. And it might be rental properties like I've been talking about, or for some of you who are a little bit farther along in your, in your wealth building, you might just want to be, you know, private lender. And I know, I don't know, Brandon, if you've written anything on this or talk to other people, but there's there, I haven't gotten into a lot of this, but there are people who do, you know, crowdfunding kind of sites and, or where they, they get into real estate by being just basically a passive investor um, who, with somebody else who's an active investor. And that's, that's something you definitely got to do your due diligence on. And you want to, I don't recommend that for beginners because I, I think the problem a lot of people get into with that is when you're a private investor, when you're putting your money and you're depending on some other active person to do it, you need to do as much due diligence as that active investor does to make sure that they know what they're doing, that the property's good. And so you need to be a little bit more involved than they make it out to be sometimes because so I would recommend, I, I would think it'd be better to start off by owning like one little rental property by yourself to learn the whole business and then get into private lending down the road. Once you're a little bit more savvy, once you figure it out a little bit more, because when you're loaning a hundred thousand bucks to somebody or 200,000 bucks, and you, you, that money can disappear. You know that, right. that they're using leverage. There, there's a lot more risk that you're taking there. So that's that's why it's a little bit more advanced strategy to understand what what it is you're getting into. Um, there's a lot of opportunities there, but that's that's sort of a, a next level of um, control. You have a lot less control than you would having this one little rental property on the side, where you can have 100% control over that. Yeah, definitely. No, that that sort of stuff always never sounded appealing to me. It always scared me. So yeah, I, I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah. Um, so we haven't even talked about, I could talk to you about this stuff all day, but we haven't even talked about your move to Ecuador yet. And and also the fact that you're, you're now renting, right? So you own all these properties, but your own personal residence will be a rental, presumably, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So part of our preparation to leave for Ecuador um, last year was to get our primary residence uh, rented out. And we're kind of up in the air. I mean, we're probably leaning because we like the elementary school where we are, that, that would, we could move back into that house afterwards if it all, if it made sense. But we're also open to the fact that, you know, we could just own hundred percent of our properties as investments and then spend a lot of time just renting properties. Like this year in Ecuador, there's no way I want to buy anything anywhere in a foreign country. <laughs> it's just not my, like, I'm totally like a local investor. Like I like to look at it and understand the market. And I just, I can't understand enough here, political system, everything else about buying. And I know some people do, but that's just not my thing. And so like, I'm, I'm totally okay with, it makes sense to rent a property and then own, uh, rent, a, rent a property that you live in and then own a bunch of investments. There, there's no problem with that at all in my mind. That's really cool. Yeah. Cause I had millennial revolution on and there was a lot of backlash to their interview um, just cause they were saying, you know, don't, don't buy a house to live, to live in. Um, and a lot of the comments were more focused on like investing. So like, I, 
in my mind, I see them yeah. as two very different things. Do you agree? Is, is Absolutely. There, yeah. Okay. So live, yeah, well, buying a house yeah, to live yeah. in versus buying a investment property to rent is a whole other world. Exactly. You really have to separate those two things in your mind. I mean, the only way they cross over is the live in flip. I mean, that's, if you live in a flip or you have a house hack, yeah, that's kind of the hybrid world between investing and residents. And I, I totally think those are something to, to look at. But otherwise, I mean, most of the time a residence is not as good of investment as you could do uh, just going out and buying properties on your own. Because one of the biggest benefits of real estate is it produces income. You know, like the long, long-term appreciation rate for real estate as a whole is like 3%. You know, it kind of keeps up with inflation. But the, the big horsepower is the fact that it produces really good income if you buy it right. And so when you live in a house, you're, you know, you, yes, if you owned it free and clear, you might not have any mortgage payment, but you have also have the opportunity cost of that huge amount of money you use to pay off your house that you live in. You could have invested that in another property and made 6%, 8%, 10% uh, in, in income instead of having that mortgage payment. So, you know, just to, in my own mind, I separate those two out and, Real estate as an investment has clearly got some really good advantages and you can make a lot of money with that. Real estate as a residence, I could see at some point where you say, I've got enough money. I'm not that worried about growth. I like to live in this neighborhood. I like to own my, my own house. As long as you're making that decision open eyed and you say, I'm just living there and it's not the best investment, you know, that's fine. You know, there's no, when you make enough money, that's, that's, you can start making those decisions. But the thing that you need to know about, and I, I you don't mind linking to this article in the show notes too, I wrote an article showing the opportunity cost of living in a um, like ugly, like the name title of the article is how to get rich by living in ugly houses and embarrassing old cars. Nice. And it, it just like went over the math of showing like, particularly in your first 10 years, if you make mistakes of, of buying emotionally on your residence, as opposed to buying very, in a very calculated manner by you know, making your residence a house hack or a live in flip, or just renting and investing that somewhere else, I mean, the, the magnitude of the, that mistake is huge 20, 30 years from now. I mean, it's like $700,000 million kind of difference for somebody, you know, 20, 30 years later who made the choice to make their first home a, you know, just a, a, a nice home in a great neighborhood and paying the top price for it, as opposed to making the decision to treat your home like an investment or just rent. I mean, it's just it's a major, major difference. And so that if there's one message I could leave people with, whether they ever invest in real estate or not, is when you're first starting in your early years, of your wealth building, make your residence and make the most of your residential decision on where you live. If you, if you can make that decision right, you can be kind of boring with the rest of your investments and still do pretty well over the long run if you just take care of, of that part alone. Oh, that's fantastic. That's exactly what I'm looking for. So I will definitely link to that in the show notes. And um, yeah, and then hopefully that'll make people understand sort of where millennial revolution was coming from when Christy and Bryce were both saying, you know, similar things. And, uh, yeah, I just didn't have the, the link to give anyone to, to sort of explain it. So that's perfect. I appreciate that. I love, yeah, I, I love, I love that interview because I like how they took it a step further and said, we don't even want to own a car. We're just like, <laughs> right. we're just using like car sharing. I was like, wow, that's, that's really incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know? So I thought that was so cool. Good. Um, so yeah, so briefly before we end the interview, I'd love to yeah just hear more about why you're in Ecuador and how that came about. Yeah. So my, my wife and I, when we, like very, very first date, practically, we, we talked about, uh, we both love traveling and studying abroad and I'd had some good studying abroad experiences, uh, in Germany learning German in high school and college. And she had similar, she was a little bit more ambitious and brave with her study abroad experiences than I was. She, she like took off to Guatemala by herself and wandered around for two or three months. And she's been to Spain and El Salvador. And I mean, she, she's been all over in the Spanish speaking world. And so that was something sort of really exciting to both of us. And like pre-kids, we took some trips, backpacking trips to South America and Spain together and just really loved it. And kind of, we took some many retirements, you know, like for four or five months and um, but we, once we had kids, we kind of put it on hold for a little while. And um, so it's been a five-year-old and a three-year-old. So we've taken some smaller trips, but we have really had that itch to get back out there and do something a little bit more ambitious. And um, there's a book I really love um, by Rolf Potts uh, called Vagabonding. And so some of the people might appreciate that book. It's about kind of long-term travel, but not not travel in terms of just like going and seeing sites and 
kind of checking them off your list and, and doing everything really fast, but more of these like really slow enriching, you know, where you might not make it past one city in another country. You're just going to like go to one place and you're really going to soak it in and travel slowly. And that, that sort of has appealed to us, to my wife and I. And so that's, that's what this trip has been about for us is that we, we want our kids to have that experience of number one, learning a foreign language. We think that's a pretty important thing in today's world and just kind of opens your mind to another way of thinking when you learn how to use another, another language. Um, but also just the experience of us coming together as a family and just the crap we had to go through to get out of our house. And, you know, we just had stuff in the basement. We for six months, my wife and I were doing yard sales and selling stuff and, you know, just getting kind of, it was such a uh, eye opening experience to learn how embedded we were and how in a good way and a bad way, like we were so invested in our community and had a lot of friends and had a lot of things that we were contributing to, which was awesome. But then we also had this, these things like, what, what is this baggage we have? You know, this literally like stuff, but then also you know, these activities we were doing that really weren't that helpful. And, and so by us, like detaching ourselves from our normal life has sort of brought all of those things to light and to show us that, wow, we, we, do we really need that? Do we really need that? So it's, um, that vagabonding book is a lot about that. Like travel is sort of a, a mindfulness exercise where you, you learn about yourself and you uh, learn about other cultures, of course, and you're living, immersing yourself and opening your mind to different places. And so Ecuador, I don't know how we, ch- <laughs> we didn't have our sights on Ecuador originally. We were looking at Argentina because we had been there on our big trip and really loved Argentina and the people there. And I think we were just looking at the cost of living and the fact that um, the flights there were really expensive this year and the housing. And so we started looking around at other places. And I think we saw a statistic in some article that you know, like the happiest countries in the world. And Ecuador was like one of the happiest countries in the world by this, whatever this rating was. And it just seemed to be a really interesting place for us. They had a different cultures, different, I'm a, I was a biology major in college. So I really enjoy the um, different, like the rainforests and learning about that and the Galapagos Islands, part of Ecuador. So it just had a lot of kind of personal stuff for us that was interesting. In addition to the fact that we were going to live in a place that our girls can learn Spanish and go to school somewhere that was safe and interesting. That's and really that's, cool. That's, that's, where it, that's where it came down to. Well, I'm glad you picked there because I hopefully talked you into joining us for the Ecuador Chautauqua in uh, October. Yeah. So I hopefully see you there. I'd love to yeah, chat more in person and have a few beers. Exactly. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sold on it. I mean, uh, I think it's like an easy flight, like a $75 flight to get from here to Closer to the Chautauqua is so. Oh, fantastic! If I can get in, I'll I'll do it. Yeah, nice. by all means. Well, that would be great. Um, this is just this has just been fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time, and I appreciate the guest post. Like, I'm so excited about that guest post. It was the I've been wanting to write that for years, ever since I started writing about sort of like tax minimization and tax optimization. Um, I just didn't have the knowledge to do it. So I am so thankful that you came along and offered to do it for <laughs> me. So I appreciate that. No, no, I loved it. It was fun. Well, I, I love what your this information on your site. I, th- I recommend it so many times to other people. And I said, look at this, you know, look at these strategies and your HSA article. You know, I'm, I'm just like, I think people get sick of me hearing about it. You got to read the <laughs> mad scientist guy, like the mad who, what is, well, I don't, I read a guy that's mad and like, Hey, you got to read this, read it. Don't, you know? And so the fact that I got to share, write an article for you and help you out is, is awesome. I'm, I was happy to do it. Well, I appreciate it. Then yeah. Thanks for all those kind words. Um, so I usually end all my interviews with asking, you know, if you had one piece of advice for someone who's hoping to achieve financial independence, what would it be? <clears throat> you know, it sounds kind of boring, but I, I just think you got to keep it simple and, I think keep it simple in a couple of different ways. You know, the, the just the personal finance stuff of just increasing your savings rate and keeping your life simple. I mean, that's really what it always comes down to. Whether you invest in stocks, index funds, real estate, there's really no changing the basic formula that you have to save money and you got to keep your expenses low. So that's that simplicity is really important. Um, but then also simplicity of your investments. You know, it, Listening to me talk about my portfolio, I might sound a little, <clears throat> might sound a little ironic that you know buying 50 properties here and there. And but I think part of the lesson we took from that whole experience was that we don't need to be like crazy ambitious, and we don't need to be super, you know, doing a bunch of deals and owning a bunch of property to do accomplish all of our goals. You can be really, really simple. Like I, I think in in real estate, if you choose to go that route, you know, all you have to do is work it backwards from if you need 5,000 bucks a month to pay for your expenses you know, work it out. How many properties do you need to own free and clear to pay for 5,000 bucks? 
it's like super simple. You just, I mean, for, for many people, it's like, all right, I just need five properties or I need 10 properties. And so then that's a really simple plan. Go buy five properties, save your money, pay them off. You're done. I mean, it's really that for, you know, there are many sophisticated kind of analyses, analyses in the financial world. And if you're getting, if you, if you get kind of overwhelmed by those real estate, is super simple, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to do it. You can, and even if you are a rocket scientist, maybe that might even be like a, a, a handicap for you getting, getting into real estate. You just need to keep it simple, get a simple plan, pay off the properties and then live off the income. That's, it's really as simple as that. So that would be my recommendation. Just kind of keep it simple. Yeah, that is fantastic. And most, most things in life are better when they're simple. So um, I'm obviously going to link to all the stuff we talked about in the show notes, including the Vagabonding book that you mentioned. Um, and hopefully you can send me over some of the other links from your site uh, that you wanted to, to slot in there, because I know you have a lot of great stuff there that probably covers a lot of the things that we talked about in even more detail. So I'll link to that. But uh, how else can people get in touch with you? Uh, my home online is coachcarson.com. So that you can check me out there. And um, I think I have my links to my social media profiles on there as well. But that's that's the main place. You can click on contact me if you want to email me from that site. And or you can just email. I'm chad at coachcarson.com is my email. So it's pretty simple. And yeah, I'd love to anybody who wants to say hello to me and ask a question. I'm happy to happy to, to talk to you and love to hear from you. Awesome, Chad. Thank you so much again. And yeah, uh, have a great time getting settled there in Cuenca. And hopefully I'll see you down in Ecuador soon. Sounds good. I really appreciate you having me on. All right. Thanks, Chad. Bye. Finance.